The Dugout CEO Podcast is on the air. I'm Phil Van Horn, baseball lifer and fan of the Dugout CEO. Each week, Casey Cavell goes around the horn with baseball superstars, Hall of Fame coaches, and business leaders who've used baseball experience to win the game of life. Now batting, Casey Cavell. Dugout Nation, welcome to the Dugout CEO Podcast. Today we have on Chuck Box. Chuck is a leader at all levels, a husband, father, USA baseball staffer, and also the director of player and program development of Texas A&M Baseball. And today we're going to dive in and get into the brain and learn the secrets behind building leaders and leading the next generation. Chuck, welcome to the show. Man, I'm excited to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been following your content for a long time now, and you're really an encourager and inspirer and educator, and you're perfect for our audience. And we met a few months back. I'm like, all right, you're a five-star recruit. we got to figure out a way to get you some NIL and get you on campus. So here you are, Chuck. Thanks for being here. Man, that's the first time I've ever been called a five-star recruit. So thank you. I like that. It's all right. I read this article the other day where the five-star recruits, yeah, they're five-star recruits, but is that going to translate into a five-star recruit like performing on campuses? You see these kids now that come into schools, you're working with it all the time, and they have these ideas that, hey, I'm a five-star, but sometimes it doesn't translate, and sometimes it does translate in your role as leading young men. How do you go about taking that five-star recruit or taking that division one prospect and helping build them into the player they could be, or maybe even more important, the person they could be. Yeah. I think Simon Sinek had the scale with the seals. It may also be called the Beeswick skill. I can't remember the term, but where you don't necessarily want the most talented player. You want the next tier talented with high trust. So to me that I think that's important. And I think the thing that happens with quote unquote five stars sometimes is First of all, I'm always curious if, who is the person putting the stars on those young men. How does that go about? It's like crowning a mythical high school national champion. How do we really know who's judging that or whatever? So I'm always a little bit curious how they came to be a five-star. But for me, it all goes back to your culture. And that's something that I think we talk about all the time. And I don't think people really understand what culture is. They act like it's this formula or this matrix that neo came up with or what is it the hangover where the guy's seeing all the different it's not it's who you are what you do and how you do it it's that simple and so i think when you take great players talented people that goes for your coaches and your staff and you plug them into elite culture then that's when the magic can happen that's when beautiful things that can happen but Sometimes those kids, the other thing I think that happens is those kids, they've maybe never been held accountable. And sometimes I give the player a break because maybe he's been in a situation where he has a coach that hasn't held him accountable or was in a situation where he couldn't. And a lot of times when you take a kid like that and you put him in the right environment, I think great things happen. But to me, it all goes back to the culture of your program. And that's the most sacred thing that we have. So you said culture is three things, who you are, what you do, and how you do it. So who you are. Let's go point by point. Like who you are, what does that actually mean? For us, we ask that the mission statement of our program at Texas A&M is for each and every person in our organization to be the very best selfless version of themselves. And so there's a lot there, but it's pretty simple, man. Just be the best that you can be. And, And then I think the other thing that we have to be careful of as parents, and I'm 
probably speaking to a lot of parents on the call is your identity can't be caught up in what you eat. And that, that happens to a lot of people. Wright Thompson wrote a book and the premise of the book was the mask eats the face. And it was profiling, I think it was Tyre Woods, Michael Jordan, some of these high profile athletes that they became, you became Tiger or you became MJ. And when they go back to a quote unquote normal life, they have trouble because the mask literally eats the face. And I think if we're not careful as parents, we end up associating our kids' identity with how fast they can run, how hard they can throw a ball, what kind of grades they make. And it comes from a good place. It, com it comes from love. It comes from parents wanting the best for their children. But I think the consequence of that is we create an identity that's not based on who that child is or who that person is. It's based on what they do. And I think that is something that I have witnessed now in 30 plus years of coaching. One of the unique things that I have, I've coached at every level, so I've seen it all. And I think that's, to me, who you are is not what you do. Who you are is who you are for me. It's a child of God. It's a parent. It's a husband. It's a friend. You mentioned that I'm an encourager. That's what I want to be an encourager. The world's so full of negativity. I want to be a guy that encourages other people. And it's not fake. It's real. I like doing that. But I think that's who you are. It, it, you can't get that confused with what you do. So good. And when you're getting these players, they come in, they're an 18-year-old, 19-year-old. How do you want them to show up? What does that look like? What are the things that you're hoping they've already learned by now? So when they jump on campus, they're ready for success? Because I want you to speak to, one, maybe it's a high school coach or any coach that's leading a young person or a parent, like, how do you want somebody to show up? What are the things you want them to be great at or skilled at or learn already to make their experience with you that much better? I think for me personally, what I've seen is, number one, to understand that failure is not fatal. Having a failure mechanism, how am I going to recover from failure? Because our game, it's not built on failure. People say baseball isn't built on failure. It's not built on failure. It's built on opportunity. But failure is a huge part of what we do. And the example I use in camp when we talk about this is how many of your parents are doctors and two or three kids will raise their hand. My dad or my mom's a cardiologist. And I said, what if she had three patients out of 10 die? What would happen? Coach, she would get fired. She'd malpractice suit. Yeah, you probably wouldn't be at camp, right? But if you go three for 10 in baseball, you're a millionaire and you got a chance to be in the Hall of Fame. So I think for us and for life, man, it's, it's reframing i don't even like to call it failure reframing what success is and those little failures those little losses getting back up dusting yourself off doing it again that to me is the number one thing that's missing from the kids that we are coaching today i saw a kid in camp this summer a 12 year old making out on the bases and fall apart and we're basically playing pickup baseball in the outfield and i think we have a problem i think it's in epidemic proportions now of just people just not understanding how to fail. And so that's number one for me. And then I think the other thing is to be able to manage your time. The biggest challenge that college kids face, not necessarily in the athletic area, because we have so many people that touch our athletes throughout the course of the day that hold them accountable. But being able to manage your time, that's another one I think that's very difficult for college kids when they get here. So failure recovery, time management. And then I think the third thing, it's just the ability to solve problems. 
I, I think because of the fear of failure, we have a risk aversion. And I wonder who's going to solve the big problems. I think we're close to curing cancer, but are we raising up leaders to do that? Because you're going to have to fail and risk a lot if you're going to yeah. try to solve these big problems. So that's something else. And I'm not sure that's new to this generation. I, we have to keep things in perspective. I imagine that it was very difficult to raise a teenage boy during the Civil War or during World War One or World War Two or Vietnam. Yeah. We act like this is a the worst time of the world to live, but I'm not so sure it is, man. I was watching some, a show from the 1800s the other day. We've got to keep some perspective in that. And so I'm not sure if these are new problems, but they're problems that I see are challenges that I see with the kids that we're mentoring and leading yeah. today. Let's talk about problem solving. I think that's interesting. Like critical thinking, problem solving. Those are things you need no matter what you do. Because as not everybody, even in your program, one of the best programs in the entire country, not everybody's going to be able to make a full-time living and retire from being a professional athlete or a baseball player. They're going to have to figure out a way to get in the real world and solve problems and communicate and all that kind of stuff. One of the best leaders that I ever had, we'd have these long meetings and we'd have a list of issues that were plaguing us. And he would just ask questions, ask questions. He would never tell us the answer. He would never show us the solution. He would help us work through it. How do coaches, leaders, but then there's other people that just jump in and say, all right, this is what you need to do this, do that. And it feels like they're solving the issue, but they're not solving the real issue, which is empowering other people to solve their own problems. How do you go about empowering others to solve their own problems so you as a leader is not having to solve everybody's problems for themselves? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's one I've thought a little bit about. I think, number one, you need to hire the right people. I mean, you, that's so cliche, but it's so yeah. true. In recruiting, I call them OKGs, our kind of guys. So if you know what your mission statement is, you understand your core values, those are the things that drive your mission statement on a daily basis. You understand your, the culture piece and how it works, then you have a better idea of who you need to get into your organization. The thing I've learned, too, is when you have a clearly defined culture, and a clearly defined mission statement, then you start attracting the people that you want because they want to be a part of that too. But I think once you get the right people on the bus, so to speak, I love the book, Good to Great. People ask me all the time, my, my favorite book on leadership. I think that's it. But I think creating a safe place for people where their voices, they know their voice is heard. I've been in environments where it wasn't. I've been in environments where it was. And big ideas come from collaboration. Collaboration comes from people feeling safe to be able to contribute to, to the situation. So I think that's number one is creating a safe place. And then all I think too is, is letting it, it happen. The problem that we face in the world that we live in is everything is so fast. Everything is processed so quickly and big problems take big ideas and big time. And I don't know that we do that sometimes. So I think getting the right people in the, on, on the bus, creating a safe place and then letting time work and not being afraid to try things, not being afraid, like I said a minute ago, to fail. I think that's how you do that. So baseball, why baseball? Hearing what you're hearing, you would use these principles in any business and grow any company, right? The things that you're saying are similar things with your own unique pitch of some of the most successful people I know that have built amazing things. Why did you pick base, baseball to be the thing you were focusing on? Oh, goodness, man. I think I told you this story, but if I would have been 6'4", 6'5", you never would have heard of Troy Eggman. 
because I would have been the quarterback for the Cowboys, but I wasn't. I was five six. I did run the fastest five flat forty or fastest forty you've ever seen five flat. But I was pretty limited, limited athletically. Tremendous heart, played hard, and all the all a very coachable kid. But man, I had great mentors. I had great coaches. Um, started with my parents. They're my heroes to this day. But I had a guy named Sammy Fletcher who was my high school baseball coach, and he is one of my heroes to this day. But played in the Red Sox organization, played with Jim Rice when the Red Sox were really good, I guess back in the 70s. And anyway, he just really poured into me, and I fell in love with baseball because of him. I was also growing up in Mississippi during the time of the rise of the SEC. Ron Polk, Skip Bergman were getting that thing going. So I was exposed to college baseball, fell in love with it. Started off at, at Freed Hardeman University and was in finance. And I think I told you I wanted to, the only reason I was in finance, I wanted to wear an Armani suit and drive a red Ferrari like Tom Selleck on Magnum P.I. I had the Detroit hat and the white Sperry topsiders. Got to Freed Hardeman and realized I was really bad at math. <laughs> I turned back to what I, I wanted to do, and that was to be a baseball coach. And was a GA at Mississippi College in 1992 for Tom Gladney. Became a college head coach at 23 which I look back on that now, I had no idea what I was doing, but was at Freed Hardeman for a few years. And then I uh, got out it a couple of times, but for the most part, I've been a coach now for 30 plus years and I've enjoyed it immensely. Looking at the athletes today that you're leading versus the athletes that you led back at Freed Hardeman, what do they need now more than ever? What does that next generation really need from us as leaders? And you could be listening to this. You could be a coach leading athletes. You could be a CEO leading people, right? You could be somebody leading your family. What does somebody really need from somebody else that is, I don't know, say under their authority, but under their leadership, under their influence? What do they need from us? I think the number one thing is you've got to, you've got to begin with a connection. You've got to develop a relationship. I know that's very cliche, but um, there's only one one way to do that, and that's time and, and touches and being around people. But I think once the connection is made, the relationship is made, then I believe it it comes down to the truth telling with love. I think that we mistake the number one thing that our guys want is they want you to believe in them. If you believe is such a powerful thing. I learned this lesson my first year here. I had been a high school coach for 15 years before I came to Texas A&M. And we were in a fall scrimmage. We had a guy who was probably 21 years old, probably one of the most tooled out players I've ever seen. And he lacked a little self-confidence. And I remember calling one of my buddies who was an eighth grade coach and saying, these guys need it just as much as the eighth grader needs it. And in some ways, even more because of the pressure that our guys are under, the pressure to win, the attention that you get as a baseball player in the Southeastern Conference at a place like Texas A&M, where we have over 500,000 plus former students. It's insane. The Aggie network that you hear about is real. And those people are your fans. They're pulling for you. And our boys don't want to let them down, man. So the pressure that there is real. So I think belief, but the reason I say story, being able to tell the truth with love, I think so many people automatically assume that love is, touchy-feely and it's pats on the back and it's never correcting. That is so wrong. True love is holding people accountable. When I used to tell guys, I would have parents that would get frustrated with me when I would tell the truth as a high school coach. But I would tell those kids, man, if somebody's telling you whatever you want to hear, you need to run from those kind of people. They're not going to help you get better. 
So I think accountability with truth telling, but done so with a loving spirit because of the belief and the connection that you've made. And then encourage when you can, man. Teach, critique when you have to, encourage when you can. But I still think boys, young men, heck, I'm 55 years old. Man, when somebody tells you that they're proud of you, that feels good. That's a mm. good thing to hear. And boys, I think, need to hear it more than anybody. So, man, just mm-hmm. connection, relationships, belief, love with extreme accountability through truth telling, to me, is how you build that. Through the truth telling, sometimes it's true through love, like you mentioned. It's sometimes a tough conversation. It's not always positive. You have to go there sometimes. Why is it so hard to have that tough conversation with people? And why do a lot of people, you think, you know what, I'm just not going to go there. So I just, we're doing a renovation project on our house and family business. They just renovated my previous house and my wife got pregnant with twins. So I'm like, okay, we need a bigger house. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to hire these guys again because they did such a good job, Chuck, at renovating our previous house. I got them in the new project. And I asked, hey, where's your brother-in-law? He goes, oh, he don't work for me no more. He went to work for a competitor. And I'm just like, wait a minute. I thought they were like best friends. They were here goofing around and stuff like that. And I just asked him, like, what happened? And he goes, I don't even know. He just one day just told me he was done. Wow. And I'm just wondering what happened. Were they not able to have a tough conversation? Was he bo- holding something back and wasn't able to tell his brother-in-law? And then all of a sudden it boiled up because I've seen that. I don't know if you've seen that. It's like I'm feeling something or thinking something or maybe somebody's feeling something or thinking something about me. And then all of a sudden it blows up rather than being proactive and having that tough conversation. How do you go about going there and being vulnerable and sharing those kind of things? I think that's a great question, and you need to have my wife on here to talk about this because this is what she does for a living. She has a mm-hmm. job because people don't can't communicate very well. I, what I've seen with those things that are successful is one of the things our pitching coach, Max Wiener, does that's amazing is he has the guys in his office all the time talk, constantly talking to him. There's an ongoing conversation all the time. So it's never weird when you have to have a difficult conversation, you've never talked to the player, and then all of a sudden you got to call him in and have a difficult conversation. I think it just becomes a part of the conversation. I know this happened to me as a high school coach. There was a young man, I'll never forget, he wasn't playing a lot. He was a younger guy, and I thought he was upset with me. I thought his parents were upset with me. And when you're a high school coach, you see those parents all the time. You see them in football games, you yeah. see them in basketball games, and so I had, in my mind, thought that they were upset with me. So I start acting a little bit different to the kid. He starts acting a little bit different to me. There's definitely a, a feeling there. And I'll never forget when we were having our post, our exit meeting at the end of the year, I brought up playing time. And the kid was 100% okay with his situation, his playing time. His parents were 100%. But because I thought he was upset at me, I started treating him differently that made him treat me differently and it was all because we didn't talk to each other and I learned such a valuable lesson Casey so one of the things that I tried to do is I tried to go around during warm-ups and talk to every player on the team shake their hand pat them on the back high five them and do it every day so then let's say the kid has a bad night I have to get on to him for something we have to have a difficult conversation 
I'm going to do the same thing the next day so it's not weird. So I think creating a, a constant communication pattern where there's an ongoing conversation, which takes time. A lot of coaches don't want to invest that time. So now when you do have to have a difficult conversation or a truth-telling session, it's not weird or it's not different because you it's part of this ongoing dialogue. I think I think that's number one. I think the second thing, it goes back to the building a relationship. If I if that young man knows that I love him and I have his best, truly have his best interest at heart, the conversation is going to be easier. It's, it's going to it's going to be easier to take place. Now, doesn't mean doesn't. Here's the other thing. Doesn't mean they're always going to like it. Doesn't mean the kids always going to. Doesn't mean the parents always going to like it. But did you see the thing that Jim Leland put out the other day? If you mislead a kid, he, he, I did. I did, and I saw him before that. There was an old clip of him with Barry Bonds. Did you hear that? Yeah. And I'm like, he's talking to Barry Bonds like that? And you know what I thought? What if he quits? I thought, what if Barry Bonds quits? And I'm like, I don't know if I'd be able to. Yeah, yeah, he was okay with it. And But, man, I thought that was awesome because they may be mad at you. I've been doing this long enough now, Casey, where there's kids where I maybe had a difficult conversation with or parted ways with who are now 40 years old. They have their own kids. And now we have a relationship because they realize a lot of times as a coach, man, you know better what the kid needs than the parents do. The, parent, the parent's an agent, and that's okay. Like I would tell mom, hey, the fact that you're mad, you're upset, I'm not mad at you for that. That's your child. You shouldn't be objective. You're his kid. You're his agent. I'm okay with that. But we're on the same team. We don't agree with the path. But sometimes I found myself – knowing that what was better for the kid than the parent did. You can't tell parents that because then you're meddling, you're getting them that you're starting to raise their children. But to me, it was just, it goes back to being able to just have that constant line of communication. So when you do have to have a difficult conversation, it's part of a bigger ongoing conversation. And I wasn't always good at that. I've learned that towards the end of my high school coaching career. It's fantastic. What, Talk about this SEC, running an SEC program on a TJ Maxx budget. What's that all about? When the Texas High School Baseball Coaches Association called and wanted me to speak, I'm in a different situation than I have been in 27 years prior where I was a head coach. So you go talk about your program. You talk about whatever you want. You don't feel like you're stealing from other people. But here, one of my primary jobs is to represent our coaching staff, our program to high school coaches and I'm the liaison to those guys. And so I want to be able to take the things that we're doing without giving away any trade secrets to help those guys. So I thought the one thing I want to do whenever I present is I want to give guys things that they can use regardless of where they are or the resources, whether you're a junior high baseball coach with no resources or you're a state champion high school baseball coach with unlimited resources. I want to give you something that you can use. So I said, man, what if I was a high school coach? And when I was a high school coach, I used to travel around. and I would go to places all over the country and pick up these great ideas and bring them back. And part of the fun thing was me to try to figure out how to game the system, how to take the particular idea that I knew I couldn't afford and implement it into my program. That was fun to me. I enjoyed that. It was, it was almost like a hobby. So I said, what if I did the same thing? And I showed up at Texas A&M and I was here for two or three days. What would I take back and implement into my program? So that was the idea. And these are things, most of the things I'm going to share with them I have done 
Yeah. Because of my previous relationship with Coach, Coach Schlossnagel when he was at TCU, I had visited there several times. So a lot of stuff that we do, I had already borrowed. So I know it can be done. But just helping guys do more with less is really the idea behind that. So I'm looking forward to it in January, being with those guys. That's one of the best baseball coaches conventions in the country. You think there's going to be one big takeaway that you can share with us? What's that one thing? Is there one thing? It's, you know what? This is what you can, this is how you can do more with less. Yeah, I think really just being able to think outside the box and not, not your, not let your default be. I can't do that. I think is what so many high school coaches, I just think they automatically think I can't do that to me, but I'm going to touch on culture. I'm going to touch on the mental game, base running. I'm going to talk a little bit about a couple of hitting drills that we do, basically just showing things that I think would be beneficial to high school coaches. So it's going to be all over the board and show a lot of different stuff that we do, not any one particular thing. I love the mindset. Not saying I can't do that. There is a way we can figure it out. We can make this happen. Believe like it's so true. It doesn't matter what you're doing, like figuring out a way. And I was on the way home last night in Uber and the guy actually picked me up right outside the airport, not at the Uber lot. He was trying to think creatively. All right, how do I cut Uber out of my transaction? Because he goes, man, Uber's taking 70% of this and 70% of that. And I worked with him and he goes, can you leave me a tip? I go, let's just have a conversation. So I jump in the car and we talk for about 30 minutes. In the first 20 minutes, he's sitting there whining and complaining about Uber. And I said, his name was D. I said, D, can we change the subject? I go, what do you want? Paint me a picture. Three years from day, what do you want? He told me what he wanted. I go, you complain about Uber is not going to get you there. Can we just stop doing that and figuring out a way to help you get what you want? Yeah. yeah. Because awesome. he kept saying, I can't, they can't, they're stopping me. I go, Nobody could stop you. You're unstoppable. And I reframed his mindset to get rid of that I can't mentality. And just by doing that for these coaches is great because you're right. A coach, a leader, there's not a lot of resources or not a lot of time, but just, hey, I can. I think that's so great, Chuck. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, the, one, of the, one of the things that I like the story I've told a lot is I went to TCU one time and they had these magnetic bulletin boards. And I thought it was the coolest thing I've ever seen because, you know, how the cork boards, they tear up and they get yeah. wet. And I, man, I'm going to, I took a picture and wrote it in my notes and I get back and I call their baseball ops guy. And I can't remember how much it was, Casey, but it was like several hundred dollars for this particular. So I went to the local metal shop down the street and told him what I wanted. And the guy's like, yeah, what color do you want? So I pick up the color and I think I bought five of them, four by four for 40 bucks. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And I, so I called Zach. I said, Hey man, I just, I game the system a little bit, but I think, I think that's not just coaches. I think by nature, a lot of us are just, we seek to mediocrity. That's who we are. Our default is we can't do it or we're lazy. That's probably my problem. A lot of times I'm lazy. I don't need to work out, but I put it off, but yeah, that hopefully that'll be a big takeaway from the coaches. Hopefully, hopefully I can communicate that. Yeah. Good. So you're a great follower on follow on Twitter. So I'm going to link your Twitter profile on there. Where else does somebody get a hold of you, contact you, follow you, all that kind of stuff? Twitter's about the only place I'm really, really active. I like to joke around with my daughter and tell her I have my space. A lot of people don't remember. <laughs> I was back during the Napster days. Just Twitter. And the way that came about, Casey, was uh, I was a guy for years that showed up. I coached my team. I went home. I spent time with my family. I wasn't. I don't play golf. I didn't hang out with a group of coaches. Not because I was being mean or ugly. I just coached my team, and I wasn't good enough to coach mine in years. So I was never that guy who was worried about what the other – I get 
I get amazed at coaches. They worry so much about what the other team does. I was never that guy. Never really thought anybody wanted to hear anything I had to say. So just did my thing. And and my wife got on to me during COVID and she said, you had a lot of people that mentored you. You had a lot of people that reached out to you that helped you grow. And you have a responsibility to do that to, to a lot of the younger coaches. And she was right. And so I was bored like we were all of us during COVID. So I started putting stuff out and I realized that, man, if people really wanted to help. So that answered a big question for me. And we had a Zoom thing with coaches and we had 150 guys show up in this Zoom. And I was blown away. It was our high school coaching staff. So I realized I was helping people. So I kept doing it. And one of the things that you get, I'll get this occasionally, is Chuck's a self-promoter. He's promoting whatever. I don't. Other people's opinions are none of my business, so I don't pay a whole lot of attention to that. I do it because I enjoy doing it. I do it because I want to help people. People have talked to me about monetizing it. I might one day, but right now I think that I'm helping a lot of young coaches, and that's really what I'm trying to do, and I enjoy doing it. And I think it does promote our brand. It promotes Texas A&M, and we want to be a resource as, as the largest college in the state of Texas and one of the most successful baseball programs in the country, I think we have a responsibility to help high school coaches. I think we're a resource of those guys. So I take that very seriously and want to help them the best I can. So that's why I do what I do. This is great, Chuck. Fantastic. Hey, looking forward to seeing you in June in Omaha. Is that the game plan this year? That is the game plan. I hope to be there. It's a wonderful place to be. And maybe we'll see. I hope so. Yeah. Awesome. Great job. Thank you so much. I know our audience is going to be blessed from our time today. We'll put all the links in the show notes. And Chuck, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you, Casey. Dugout Nation, Chuck brought the thunder today. What an amazing time. And here are the big three takeaways that I get. These are things from a top Division I leader. And these are the things he wants his athletes to learn before they get to college. Number one, learn how to communicate effectively. Number two, have tough conversations. Learn how to go there with teammates, with classmates and coaches. And number three, be open and honest in all communication. Number two, learn how to solve your own problems. Be solutions focused. Realize that you're part of the problem, but also part of the solution. Don't go pointing blame and pointing fingers at others. Point them back at yourself and say, all right, if this is an issue, if this is a problem, how do I solve this problem forever? And number three, you got to teach people how to do hard things. Allowing those we lead to handle challenges on their own is key. Don't step in and do the hard things for them. Let them figure it out. And once they do, they're going to do it again. And failure, it's not fatal. Failure is built on opportunity, and that's what we want to do. We want to help the next generation or those we lead figure out a way to solve their problems Think proactively, set goals, set a vision, and figure out a plan, and empower them to surround themselves with the right types of people. And the last thing I'm going to say, the OKG that he mentioned, our kind of guy, our kind of gal. Be clear on the people that you want to surround yourself with. If you're hiring people to join your team or hiring an assistant coach or recruiting an athlete, make sure they're a valuable fit. And if you're recruiting people to your program, make sure that you understand what your OKG is. What are your values? What is your vision? What is your mission? The people that you're surrounding yourself with, they have to be in full alignment. Thank you for joining us once more for another episode of The Dugout CEO. We want to get you the tips you need to become an MVP of what you do. Sign up for our Friday Focus newsletter and you'll receive a valuable tip each Friday morning to help you build the business and life you want. 
you can sign up by going to caseycavell.com or click the link in the show notes. And make sure to hit the subscribe button so you get notification on our next episode. And one way you can help us book more great guests like this is to please leave us a rating and honest review in the Apple or Spotify podcasting app.